in a few weeks' time, I'm starting a series in one of the Gospels, and uh, I felt it would be appropriate to wind back a little bit before we get to one of the Gospels. You know, there were four Gospels. Each of them tells the account of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, his, his world-changing impact, his teaching, and the deeds and so on that he did while he was on the earth. But you cannot understand Jesus in isolation. And so in these weeks, um, I want to start a kind of a pre-series in a sense, in which I want to delve into a few of the um, key texts in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, which uh, preceded the coming of Christ, that anticipate his coming, predicting it, and telling us what he was coming for. So that's what we're beginning today. And we're going to read from Genesis 3, verses 1 to 15, the account of the fall. Genesis, the first book in the Bible, chapter 3. Let me begin. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. At the moment, all that has happened is that God... All that has happened. Slight understatement. All that's happened is that God has made everything. And uh, Adam and Eve are present, the only humans. And they are there in the garden. And this is... This, this, the, the importance of this passage cannot be overstated. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I want to begin by just thinking about this question of how it is that we are supposed to read the Bible. If you are a Christian, you understand that the Bible is important, central, and that you are meant to read it. But I think a lot of Christians approach it from very different angles and perspectives, and it shapes the way you handle it, the way you 
read it. And there are wrong ways and there are right ways. I think one of the wrong ways that we read the Bible is that you kind of view it as a, a collection of detached thoughts for the day. You know, like the, the posters that you can have on walls with the kind of pictures of doves and lambs and isolated texts, inspirational texts. And it's now Instagram, isn't it? But it, back in the day of cheesy Christian bookshops, they used to make posters. But, um, and you have that kind of approach to the Bible where you, you pull out a, a sentence, and it's not unimportant that you know, sentences change your life. There's no question of that. But people can handle the Bible a little bit like a magic eight ball. You remember those, the black things which you shake, and then a, t- a few words will pop up that gives you some kind of guidance for today or some kind of insight from the beyond. Or you know how people read their, their fortunes in the, in the newspaper. They read their kind of uh, horoscopes and... Uh, or they break open the fortune cookies. And to, to, to treat the Bible like that, as a, selection, as a set of isolated texts, inspirational, or whatever, however you understand it, is, is a wrong way to read the Bible, to handle it as a general pattern for how you understand it. And yet many Christians do. Another way that that's, I think is incorrect is to read the Bible as a kind of cold, dry list of laws, a little bit like the instruction manuals, which used to get with electronic kit um, at home. So some of you don't know what a DVD player is, but back in the day, we used to have DVD players, and before that, VCRs, and before that, who, who knows what. But we, we had these things, and you'd, you'd open the box, and if you were nerdy, you might want to read the instruction manual and uh, kind of figure out how all the, the, the newfangled features work, like Video Plus and these kinds of things, which have kind of gone into the pit of history as irrelevant today. But a lot of people handle the Bible a little bit like that, like it's a, a kind of a dry instruction manual, not particularly inspiring, not particularly exciting, but, but nevertheless has things in there that I need to do. And I don't think, you know, these approaches and probably there's a whole bunch of other approaches that we could describe, but they're not right. And the way that, the most important way that you can, you can understand and read the Bible is to recognize that it is an epic story. Even the historical accounts that it covers span centuries and even millennia. But of course, it's not a story that has yet come to an end. And there are threads and themes that run through the pages of the Bible, which are introduced at the very beginning and which still are in continuous all the way through to the very last pages of the Bible and which apply to us today, which is why the scriptures have an abiding relevance to us, because we find ourselves in the same story with the same characters at play, the same human issues at work, the same problems, the same anxieties, the same fears, the same oppressions, but also the same hopes, the same God. And you cannot, the only way you can really understand your life, as Christians see it, is to see your life superimposed, as it were, across this great story that's playing out in creation. This is why the scriptures are so vital. They shape the way you understand the world, the narrative through which you understand your life and, and everything. Now, when you read the Bible in that way, you discover that it is both hugely complex and incredibly simple. You know, it was put, I think it was Karl Barth, a, a legendary theologian who described it as being deep enough for an elephant to drown in, but shallow enough for a child to paddle in. And there's truth about that in the way you read the Bible. There's complexity which, uh, which confounds even the best minds around theology and life and ethics and philosophy and all these kinds of things. And men, can, men and women continue to grapple with these things. 
And yet there is simplicity to the storyline because ultimately it's really only about one character. When you see him, then all of it begins to make sense. You see, it's about Jesus. Jesus said that the scriptures are about him. And his life fits into the, all the hopes and the expectations and the anticipations that are set up in the Old Testament before his arrival. Now, even having said all that, I suspect that there are some of you who still struggle with the problem. Well, whether the Bible is interesting, whether it has relevance to your life today. And obviously, I think we're conflicted in this area. I think that we know that we have needs, and yet most of the time we can go through life kind of unaware or or pasting over the needs that we feel in our heart. We live in the age of invention, and I think in, in the age in which we live, it is increasingly common for people to reject religion or to re- even reject the questions that religion is asking because we're so distracted by the glittering lights of a world of possibilities. You know, we live in the age when you can buy a Bluetooth milk frother for £179. I don't know why you need a Bluetooth thing to froth your milk, but this is the age we live in. And it, when we're so dazzled, by the possibilities of the world which seems to be constantly on the very edge of invention and, and hope and possibility, it's not surprising that for many of us, the questions of religion seem outdated and uninteresting and irrelevant to our day-to-day lives. I was just reading an article this morning uh, which was describing this kind of this tension. He was saying we were supposed to be happy. He said, Americans, I think it applies to us just as much, live in a time of comparative peace and unprecedented prosperity with technological wonders and remarkable personal liberty. For most of us, the old indignities of life are gone or greatly reduced. We have light and water, hot or cold, on command. Our bodily waste is flushed away, and we live with central heating and cooling. Indeed, for many of us, sweating, stinking, and suffering are what we do for exercise or recreation, not inescapable features of life, endless entertainment, And nearly boundless education are available for the price of a smartphone and an internet connection or just a library card. And so we live in this age where the world just seems almost too good to be true. And yet, occasionally, your sense of existential need will pop up, surprise you. In that same article, he says, yet the symptoms of civilizational despair are persistent and worsening. He describes how things like suicide rates are on the increase and so on. You wrestle with this conundrum. And I think some of the issue is that we're very conflicted. We live in the world of possibility. And yet we know that we have needs that are not addressed by what this world has to offer and the answers that people are giving. And you feel that in the extremes of life, I think. You feel it when you're suffering the most when you experience the most pain in your, in your life, that's when you're awakened to needs that no amount of technology and comfort can answer. You also feel it when you're succeeding the most in life, actually. When everything is going well, and yet you sense something is missing. When you get everything you wanted, and yet your life is not making sense anymore, then you become conscious that perhaps there is more than what this world has to offer. Now, I say all that because 
as we delve into a a few of these prophecies about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, they help us answer two questions. One is, what is the great need for which he had to come? What is the relevance to your life? And how does he, uniquely in human history, answer that great need? In other words, why why can you not live a life without Jesus? Why is he inescapable, in a sense? Why is it that you cannot avoid him or go around him or pretend that he is not there? And I want to try and answer that as we, as we delve into a few of these passages in the coming weeks. And I want to begin with this one, this, the account of the fall. And I want to speak to you about the serpent and the seed and the salvation, these three things that emerge out of this text. Beginning with the serpent and who he is and what he came to do. Now, it's hard for me, as I said earlier, to overstate how important this little passage is for the storyline of Scripture. It really answers so many of the biggest questions. Where does evil come from? Why do I experience separation from God? What is sin? But one of the the angles from which I want to understand it today is that it sets up for us this crucial truth. That from the biblical worldview, there are two opposing kingdoms, no more and no less. It may feel that there are many, many more than that when you go through life and you see different ideologies and philosophies and religions and all the rest of it. But the Bible basically breaks it down into two camps. It says there's, there's God and there is Satan. It's binary in that sense. And humans have kind of known this since the dawn of time. Many of our religious beliefs are binary in nature. They're kind of, there's a dualism. There's good and evil. There's yin and yang. And there's dark and there's light and all these kinds of things. And we've known this. And the Bible sets this up as basically, this is, this is life. There are two kingdoms and you are in one of those kingdoms. And by nature, by birth, you find yourself in the wrong one. This is how it's put in the New Testament. It says that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So he's saying basically, from birth, you were born into a kingdom that is opposed to God, and you were a subservient slave within that kingdom. You didn't choose it, but this is who you are. This is what you are by nature. Now, I know that it might sound a bit weird when a Christian says that because not many people talk about spiritual realities these days and they don't talk about dark spiritual realities and they don't talk about Satan. And partly I think we've been, there's been a massive disservice in all the Christian art that's run through the running centuries where you have these pictures of Satan as this kind of red-horned guy with a spiky tail and it's, he's become a bit of a cartoon character. And so when I say to you, listen, this is what the Bible says about you, that without God you are under his rule. What, the, what Paul describes as the prince of the power of the air, you might immediately react to that and think, no, that doesn't make any sense to my life or my experience. It doesn't feel true to me. It doesn't feel true to me intuitively. It doesn't feel true to my day-to-day life. But I would, I would want to push back to you and say, well, how would you know that if you don't first understand what it means to be 
within that kingdom. If you can't, you know, if all you have as reference points are cartoon portrayals of who Satan is and the way he works, then of course you don't feel that you're in within that kingdom. But when you begin to understand what the Bible has to say about what it means to be within that kingdom as opposed to the kingdom of God, actually this begins to make a lot of sense to you. And the passage that, are, that we're looking at, this one in Genesis 3, shows us the serpent, the work of the serpent in our lives. And it shows us how his power works. And I want to show you a few things in terms of what it means to be under his control and within his kingdom. And there are three, three things that, that are seen within this passage, which is just so, such an archetypal passage. It kind of, its resonance and relevance will be immediately recognizable to every one of us when we open up these, these ideas. There are three ways that he works. Here's the first one. It's through the power of lies. This is how he's introduced. It says that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. It means that he has a kind of devious mind. And as, it, as it, the story unfolds, you begin to see the way, the way the devil works. And it's absolutely the same way that he works in our lives today. His first question to the woman, he says, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And they actually, the answer is no, God didn't say that. Eve should have known because it was, that's not a fair representation of what God said at all. He didn't ban them from eating of the trees. He said, you shall eat of any tree in the garden except one. And Eve is immediately thrown into confusion by his question. He works firstly through the power of lies in her mind. And then he begins to ramp it up, having gained a little bit of a foothold, having engaged her with conversation a little bit further down, he says to the woman, you will not surely die in eating the fruit. He directly contradicts what God has said about the eating of the fruit. And then he, he pushes it a little bit further. He says that God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, friends, you have to understand that this is the basic same strategy which pulls us away from obedience to God that's been at work since the dawn of time. The power of Satan really boils down to one thing, his ability to lie to us and for us to believe those lies. That's always the kind of first foothold in a human heart. And the way his lies work always follow that same pattern. It's by kind of confusing what the rules and the commands and the will of God is, contradicting that, and then offering something that seems so much more tantalizing and better in, in opposition to obedience to God. When you, if you read back a page and you understand what God had said to them, he'd offer them, he'd offer them the world. And he said, okay, there's just one, one little rule. Just don't touch that tree over there. You think, that would be so easy. It's the easiest thing, right? Everything is ours except that one little tree. And somehow Satan managed to flip that whole thing on its head. And made it the obsession of their minds and hearts. That the one thing that they couldn't have is the thing which they most need. The thing which God is withholding from them. And think about the temptations that you face on a day-to-day basis. Think about the temptations that rage most powerfully in your heart. At some point in there is the belief that God is holding something back from you which you need for your happiness and your well-being. The reason why 
that temptation continues to confuse you and often causes you to trip and fall is because you've believed that, that idea, that there is something glitzy and beautiful and appealing about the temptation which you need in your life. You need it right now. And so this is the pattern that always works. It's firstly the power of lies. Then it's also the power of desire or, or lust, I suppose, when it becomes an intense desire. It says that about the woman a little bit further on in verse 6. It says that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desired to be desired to make one wise, she took and she ate. You've got to understand that the writer isn't denying the appeal of sin. He's not saying, you know, this stuff is ugly, just keep away from me. He's saying, no, no, of course, it's very deeply appealing. If it was not appealing, it wouldn't have any appeal, right? And you've got to also understand that at this point, Eve and Adam are sinless, and yet they still experience this desire. So the desire in itself isn't a sinful thing at that point. To experience temptation is not in and of itself sin. To feel the lure of something which you know is illegitimate is not in and of itself sin. So when does sin become, when does desire tip into something evil in our hearts? When does it go from just a desire to becoming a lust which has gripped you? And I suppose it's when a few conditions are met. It's when the thing which you want is illegitimate. It's when the thing which you want is mingled with lies, promises, ideas, like this is the thing which you need in order to fulfill your life. And it's when you start to believe those lies. And when all of that happens in your heart, what was just the attraction to something illegitimate becomes lust. And this is what happened in Eve's heart. It's what happened in Adam's heart. And it's what happens in all of our hearts every time we sin. The lies take a purchase on your life because of desire. And this is when Satan gets a grip on you. And then there's another way that he works. After this has all happened, after Adam and Eve have eaten this fruit, there's this amazing way that he describes the effects of that great mistake on their, on their lives. He says that they immediately, what's their first reaction? It says that they realize they're naked and they sew leaves together to make into clothes. It's a kind of a pathetic attempt to cover up a sensation which is new to them. And you ask yourself, what is that sensation? And the answer is, it's shame. It is shame. At one stage, they'd been perfectly innocent. And innocence is best captured by the idea that you have absolutely nothing to hide. Your heart is completely guileless, without deception. And you know, this is, in some senses, you see it best in young children, don't you? I can still tell little stories about my kids because they're young enough at the moment. At some point, I will have to stop. But last week, well, I take Seth swimming every week, and it's part of our kind of father-son ritual. It's some fun thing we do together. And up to now, he's been pretty useless, but he's getting there. He's learning to swim. Um, he's been afraid of water, sadly, but we're getting there. And anyway, I, I took him into the men's changing rooms, and... And I needed to go um, use the bathroom. 
And so I said to him, we're in a hurry. The lesson was starting. So I said to him, Seth, get yourself changed and, uh, and do it quickly. And when I'm out, I want to see you changed. And um, I went in there. And like, literally, like 15 seconds later, I hear his voice. Daddy, I'm done. I'm finished. I thought, that's really weird because he's usually so slow. And so I, I washed my hands, came out. And uh, there he was in the men's changing rooms, completely starkers. And I was like, what are you doing, Seth? He said, I'm, I'm changed. And he was completely oblivious to the fact that he was totally naked. He'd just forgotten to put his shorts on. And it, for me, it just captured so much the child mindset of innocence, doesn't it? Like, there's just no consciousness of, of what it means to be naked at that age. It's, you know, often it's a preferable situation when you're under five years old. You'd rather run around with no clothes on than with them on. And this, this is really what, in a sense, Adam and Eve were very childlike in that sense. I think, in, I think they would have been smarter than us and more capable than us in very many ways, but, but certain part of them was undeveloped, their capacity for shame, until they ate the fruit. And the first thing they do is they clothe themselves to hide from one another. So the immediate effect of sin is that it starts to fragment their relationships with each other. And you think, well, why is it that I struggle to maintain friendships? Or why is it that I find friction in my marriage? Or why is it that it's so hard to live with other people as a single person? Or the answer always is because there are things which divide us. We're not totally open with one another, are we? We, don't, we can't really be completely real with one another ever and feel the closeness and intimacy because there is always a point at which you reach the shame barrier. And it's depicted here in their physical condition that they are clothed. But it's true on a spiritual level as well, isn't it? And we shouldn't separate the two things. To clothe yourself is, in many ways, an effort to cover yourself up and to hide who you are. Now, I'm not advocating for nakedness as some kind of new <laughs> Christian cult or whatever, but it, it is a wonderful visual representation of what's going on in them. And it begins with their relationships with one another, but it also very quickly is seen in how they relate to God. Because as soon as God comes into the garden, it says that Adam and Eve, what do they do? They hid. And you ask, well, why did they hide? And the answer is, is given, actually. Adam tells, tells God why he hid, because God asks him that very question. He says, where are you? And Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Have you ever felt afraid of God because you're naked? No. The, the, re- the reason you would feel afraid from God in those moments is because you feel that he can see right through you, and he knows what you have done. The impulse to hide from God is as old as humanity itself. And it is all rooted in this reality of shame. So what I'm trying to show you is that the work of power of the serpent in their lives, in our lives, follows that pattern. It starts with the seduction of lies, which take a grip on your heart because of the desires which ferment inside your spirit, and then results in shame, which is when he's got you. Because if he can hold you in a place of shame, he can keep you separate from other people and separate from God himself. That is what the kingdom of Satan feels like. So when you say, I don't feel like I'm in the kingdom of Satan, did you know that that's what it felt like? That's what the Bible tells us it means to be within his kingdom. We're next introduced to an idea, a prophecy actually, about the seed. The Bible tells us that the basic war, which is set up here in these earliest pages of Scripture and which continues to this day, 
is the war for your soul. And it introduces, right when the breach comes between God and humankind, even in these earliest moments of the story of humanity, a glimmer of hope is introduced here with the passage of the curse toward the serpent, which contains a prophetic resonance. Did you see in verse 14 and 15 where God curses the snake? He says, because you've done this, Curse you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'm really just talking to the snake as a snake. But we also know that the snake represents something much, much worse. In the Bible, later on in the pages of the Bible, particularly in the book of Revelation, the snake is, is, is recognized to be in some way inhabited by a satanic power. And then the crucial verse, he says, I will put enmity, a kind of hostility between you and the woman. And between your offspring or seed and her offspring or seed. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now this is a verse which has been understood for centuries. And described as the proto-evangelion. Which means the first gospel. Because within it, it contains the very first promise of the coming of the Messiah and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It speaks about a son of Eve, one of the seeds of Eve. Because the word offspring can either be collective, it's speaking of descendants, plural, or it can be singular, meaning a descendant, a son. And the idea is set up that someone is going to come who will be in a state of hostility and enmity against the serpent and begin to engage him in battle. Now, of course... There's a sense in which that's true for all the people of God, and we'll get onto that later. But it is most perfectly true in its prophesying about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you ask, this is the question you've got to ask, because you've got to think. Here, here, here he tells us the beginning of the story. All great stories start with a great crisis, a problem that must be solved. And here it is, humankind have fallen tragically into Satan's kingdom and into opposition against God. And then he, the glimmer of hope comes. How will we be saved? How will we be helped? And I think the answer is, is basically that he tells us about a son who would resist and then do battle. And here's how he resists. He resists along the exact ways that you see the power of Satan work. Those lies, those temptations and, and desires, and the shame. Think about those things. That First of all, This son, this seed, this offspring of Eve, he had to face the lies of temptation. The Bible tells us something extraordinary about Jesus Christ when he comes. We're told that he's the the beginning of a new humanity, a kind of a second Adam. But if he's to fulfill that role, he has to face the exact temptations and trials that Adam himself faced, and he has to win in the ways that Adam lost. And that begins with the experience of temptation through the lies of Satan. Two of my favorite passages in the Bible are in the book of Hebrews. The author to the Hebrews, talking about Jesus, says that he, the Lord Jesus Christ, had to be made like his brothers. He had to become like us, he says, in every respect. He had to be a full human. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He said, Jesus would would not be useful to us 
as a savior if he did not first experience life as a human. And then he says more specifically, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. He puts it slightly differently a little bit later on in chapter 4. He says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. You know, if the Lord Jesus Christ had never experienced the life that you and I are faced with in the day-to-day trials, he says he would not be sympathetic to us in, in what we face. He wouldn't understand the weaknesses of our humanity. But he says he did experience it. And he, he's very specific. He says, we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Which means that Adam and Eve were confronted, with, first of all, with lies, weren't they? And they began to believe those lies. Now, for Jesus to do battle with the serpent, he had to, first of all, be confronted with the same kinds of lies. They're not the exact same lies. It's not to do with eating a fruit. But it's very similar. You can read about temptations Jesus faced and how Satan tries to trick him and lure him. And what you discover about Jesus is that continually the way that he does battle against the power of the serpent is by confronting lies with truth. There's a passage in the book of Isaiah describing the Lord Jesus in this way. It says, the Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens me. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. What he's saying about Jesus, above all men who've ever lived, is that he was interested in the word and the ways of the living God. telling us that morning by morning he would wake early to read and understand the will of God as it's given to us in the Bible and that he learned it from boyhood and he understood God's heart and God's ways and he knew the Father so that when the lies of Satan would confront him, he'd been listening to God too intently to be tricked by the lies of the enemy. And again and again as Satan throws temptations at Jesus, Multiple times through the Gospels, in all kinds of different shapes and forms, Jesus consistently answers him with Scripture and with the knowledge of of God's will. He had to win that first battle. Which, of course, means that he's able to also win the battle in, in terms of desire. He had to overcome the power of lusts, as it were, and of those internal desires which pull us towards sin. You think, well, did Jesus desire in the way that you and I do? And it's a kind of a yes-no thing. On the one hand, he desired, just as we do, because desire in and of itself is a very, very good thing. God made us desiring creatures. We are not those who suppress our desire, like we're told in some religions, because God himself is full of passion and desire. And he made us that way so that we could experience the goodness of his creation and experience him personally. But as I said to you earlier, desire can very easily tip into something very corrupted. So Jesus, while he experienced desire, the desires never settled into his heart into something like lust that we experience on a day-to-day basis. Which is why, uniquely, when you look at Jesus, there is no hint of scandal associated with his life. It's a great tragedy, isn't it, that 
repeatedly, almost relentlessly, and tire- it's just so tiring how often those whom we should be esteeming in public life, whether those who have who achieved great success, whether those who have power, all kinds of people are constantly experiencing the, the exposure of scandal. Because it doesn't matter how powerful you are, how successful you are. Jesus is very clear that your sins will be shouted from the rooftop. Things come out, don't they? But when you look at the life of Jesus, there's no greed. There's no gluttony. There's no sexual licentiousness. It's so interesting that the women who were most, who had been most experienced, the the desires of men and the ugly desires of men, were actually felt safest around Jesus. And he was actually unashamed also to have them in his presence because he had nothing to hide. If he'd been engaging in sexual sin, I think he would have distanced himself from prostitutes. Can't be seen with them. But the very fact that he welcomes them into his presence, they touch him in a way which actually breaks first century barriers of man and woman contact. Like when, when the sinful woman is weeping at his feet and washing his feet with her hair. It tells you that he is totally shameless in her presence. So while people throw scandalous accusations at Jesus, nothing can stick because he was pure. Because he'd not been ruled by his desires. And they had not become lust in his heart. And therefore also, there's no shame in Jesus. Satan's grip over us is strengthened through the power of shame and accusation, isn't it? But Jesus lived a totally unashamed life. And it wasn't the arrogance of some who think that they don't need forgiveness. You know, a notorious world leader is famous for for bragging that he never asked God for forgiveness. You think, well, you better at some point. But Jesus had no shame before the Father and had no shame before men because his life was not dirty. His life was not polluted. He could not be impeached because no accusation could stick against him. So ultimately, what Genesis is describing when it talks about this seed, this offspring, who would be at war with the serpent, is that there would be the hope of someone who would be a kind of equal in battle against this snake. Because the rest of us just get bullied and pushed around and squashed, right? By our own desires, by our own gullible natures. But someone would come who would not be so easily tricked. And when he describes how the serpent would bruise his heel, but he would crush or bruise his head, he is, of course, giving... The shadow of the hope of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. How there would be an event in history in which the two would do battle in a way which would result in a final end. And friends, this is the hope of the cross. That when Jesus was nailed to that tree, he was bruised. His heel was bitten by the serpent. But what Satan didn't know was that when he went to attack the heel, the very heel which he would bite would crush his head. 
And this is the great mystery of the cross, that whilst it looks like Jesus has been defeated and destroyed by the serpent, it is actually the moment of his great victory. And all of this is kind of tightly wound up in this few short words in one little verse at the beginning of the Bible. It begins to unravel, of course, in the pages of Scripture when you see it more and more clearly as you read on. But there it is in its kind of first form that he would ultimately win and beat the serpent. Now, I want to bring this around to a final thing about the salvation that it offers us because, friends, if we're sat here today, the question you should be asking is, well, how does this help me in my day-to-day life? given that I do wrestle with the lies and the desires and the shame over which Satan seems to have a grip on me? And the answer is that when you become a Christian, it's like you you join the resistance. I know it's often painted the other way around, isn't it? That to be rebellious and to be in resistance is to not conform to religion. It's actually very much the opposite. You're born into a conformity to Satan. You're born a slave. The resistance is to join the side which is battling Satan. And to be a Christian is to join that resistance. God hints at this. In the very next chapter, when the first murder takes place, two brothers, the sons of Adam and Eve, end up in a tragic little family feud. And Cain, the older brother, kills his younger brother, Abel. And when God confronts Cain, it's so interesting the way he speaks to him. Because he says to him, he says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is against you, contrary to you, but you must rule over it or dominate it. And he's picturing how this is the battle that humans are going to face from here on. It's like the serpent through his lies and sin, the power of sin over us. It's like a little creature at the door of your heart. And it wants to get in. You open the door and it's into the house and you can't get the thing out. And he's saying, listen, this is how you do war with sin. It wants to rule over you. It wants to gain prominence over you. But he says, you must dominate it. You must crush it. But of course, every person who's ever tried to resist temptation consistently knows, it's really hard. How do I dominate sins which seem to be more powerful than my ability to control myself? How do I overcome my own desires? And the answer is through the cross. That when Jesus beat Satan at the cross, he began to unravel the power of Satan as I've been describing it over your heart. And I think it helps if we think about this backwards and we start with the power of shame. Shame is an appropriate sensation when you've sinned. It is. It's right that every one of us should feel shame when we do things which we know displease God. And God knows we do it every day, right? But left alone, shame robs you, destroys you. It breaks down your your ability to relate to others. It isolates you, twists your heart, and it turns you inwards on yourself. And it erodes any sense of intimacy that you can have with God. But what Christ did for us when he took our sin... Upon himself, when he was nailed to the cross, was that he began to undo and unravel the power of shame 
in your life. I think this is why when I read that verse in Hebrews 4, it's so relevant that we don't have a a priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Not because we deserve to, he's saying. But he says that we might find mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's saying, because you have this great Savior who knows what it feels like to experience temptation, you think that in your shame, he would come to you with judgment and condemn you. But he's saying that's not how Jesus feels towards you. He's saying he feels deeply sympathetic towards your, your plight. Yes, you've sinned, but he gets it. Because he experienced the full weight of temptation. He experienced it more deeply than you and I do because he never buckled. He bore the full weight of temptations on himself. And so he gets it. He understands the battle you're facing. This means that for you, you can come into God's presence unashamed because Jesus is welcoming you in and saying, I will clean you up. I'm going to offer you mercy. I'm going to offer you grace. And you don't just come into God's presence. It's like you can strut into God's presence. He says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. You think you need to grovel and crawl your way in. He's saying, no, no, no. Stand up and walk in. And the power of shame begins to unravel in our hearts. Bonhoeffer said this. He says, come out of your hiding place from your self-reproach, your covering, your secrecy, your self-torment, and from your vain remorse. He's saying, you're welcome, if you believe the gospel, to come out of all of those things. It's only a matter of a choice, actually. He undoes the power of shame, and then he starts to break the power of the lustful desires, which, which seem to have this unbreakable grip on us. If you think that you are powerless in the face of your sins and addicted to stuff which you can't break, then of course you'll constantly trip and fall. Because you, you feel hopeless even to begin to fight against it. You're like, well, I'm addicted, or I'm, this, it's inevitable. And so you always trip into the same things again and again. But because we have this Savior who undoes the power of shame, the gospel begins to enable you to fight in ways that you didn't know were possible. Paul puts it like this. He says you can... You can sow to the flesh and reap death, or you can sow to the spirit now that you're a Christian and reap life. So yeah, you can keep feeding the desires in your heart. And the more you feed it, like a little dragon, it's going to grow stronger and stronger until it has a command over you. But he says there's an alternative to that. You can sow to the spirit, which is to say you refuse to feed those desires. And you begin to welcome the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And you begin to walk by the Spirit, Paul says. And when we walk by the Spirit, the virtues and the Christ-like character that he's forming in us begins to grow. And this is an incremental thing. This is the great battle for the rest of your life. You have a choice every moment, day by day. Are you going to feed the dragon of the flesh? Or are you going to walk by the power of the Spirit? And the promise of the scriptures is that God enables you. He comes and breathes into your life. He comes and empowers you that you can walk by the Spirit now when you could not before. He gives you the power to say no to sin and yes to God. And then, of course, in all of this, he helps break the power of the lies which caused it all to begin with. Because you start to realize what you didn't see before, what Adam and Eve didn't see with any clarity. 
which is two sides of the same coin, you start to see that sin tastes much worse than you were led to believe and that God is much kinder than you were led to believe. Those things will flip round, won't they, for, for Eve. So sin looks wonderful and God seems really mean and harsh. So I'm just going to go for sin today. But when you experience the grace and the love of God covering you, forgiving you, cleansing you, dealing with your mess, those, the, the truth replaces the lies. And those two things are flipped round to where they ought to be. I love these verses in, in Proverbs where he's describing the lure of sexual temptation, which is just one among many, of course, but it's, it's so, so pertinent. And he says about a young man, he says, the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. And her speech is smoother than oil. Of course, these are the most desirable things for a young man in the ancient world. He's thinking, honey, oil, the good stuff of life, a woman. And then he says, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. I don't know what wormwood is. I assume it's very bitter. He <laughs> says, you think it's honey to taste. And then as soon as it goes into you, it's like rot sets into your spirit and darkness comes into you. And your, your stomach is turned and you feel sick on account of your sin. I, I, I don't think there's anyone here who doesn't know what that feels like. The world has no answers to this. The only answer that you're given is, well, go back to the honey. Keep trying more. Because presumably at some point it's going to feel good. Until you destroy yourself. Until you end up like one of those pitiful people whose whole life is dominated by their desires. And the Bible says, no, you can, for the first time you can see truth in this, that what looks so appealing on the outside is actually death in you, and it will destroy you. But you also then experience the other side to it, that God is kinder than you ever knew. He's kind enough to have given his son for you. He's kind enough to welcome you into his family. He doesn't want to withhold from you. He doesn't want you to feel like you're missing out in life. Whatever is the battle that you're particularly facing, maybe it's the frustration with God that you're still single. And you think, God's withholding from me the one thing I need. Or that you're childless. Or that you haven't experienced your dreams being fulfilled in life. Whatever it is that that pulls you, that pulls you, the lie that says, God isn't good, this is good. Jesus can undo that lie and help you experience the power of truth again. And the ultimate promise of what is being described in in Genesis 3, when he describes this enmity between the descendants of the snake and the descendants of, 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 of Adam and Eve, of Eve, is not only the victory of Jesus when he won on the cross, but also then how you can win because you're, you become sons of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is how Paul puts it in, in Romans 16. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You are not powerless anymore. You are not a victim. You are not in that kingdom anymore. Because when you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, you can stomp all over the head of the serpent and his rule in your life. Will you bow your head with me? There are basically two kinds of people here today, aren't there? 
There are those for whom, if you are honest, you know that because you do not belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, because you've not become a Christian, because you've not surrendered your life to him, and not experienced his forgiveness, and experienced what it is to be part of his family, then at least on the account of the Bible, then you are in the other kingdom. And you have to reckon with the reality of that. What does it mean to be part under the Satan's rule? And do you want to continue in that? And I want to invite you that you can do something about it today. The Lord Jesus Christ beckons you. Just as sin was being described to Cain as that, like a creature knocking on the door trying to get access to the heart. There's another picture that's at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation which says that Jesus stands at the door and knocks at your heart. And if you open, he'll come in and dine with you. But there's a sense in which you have to grab the handle and open the door in order to experience the presence and power of the Lord Jesus in your life for the first time. And you ask, well, how do I do that? And it is very, very simple. It is as simple as saying to the Lord, Lord, I know that I am a sinner. I need forgiveness and I need your son. Confess that you're a sinner and ask God for his power to change your life. That's one kind of person. And the other kind of person is those of us who we know that we're saved. We know that we belong to Jesus. We know that we're part of his family. We come under his rule and reign. But... The power of the serpent still seems to have a grip on us. And Jesus wants to undo that. Why don't we open our hands to God and begin to pray to him now. I want to lead us in a prayer of confession and repentance so that we can come to him in communion and experience him again in a fresh way as we worship. We need to begin with thanksgiving. Father, we thank you. That you gave the Lord Jesus Christ to be the hero that we needed. The champion that we needed. The one who would confront the serpent and actually win. We recognize in our lives the influences of Satan. How his lies corrupt our minds. How our desires lead us. And how we experience shame on the back of these things that destroys our relationship with you and with others. Lord, we want to come to you now and confess our sin. And as we breathe out confession, we breathe in the grace of God. The love of God, the grace and mercy that you, Lord Jesus, are a sympathetic high priest over us. And I pray, Lord, for the liberating power of God to work in our lives that habits and patterns will be broken, that slavery will be undone, and that we will experience, Lord, the freedom of what it is to be in Christ's kingdom. In the name of your Son we pray. Amen.